This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 50, War of the Gargantuas. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherschel. Happy extended holidays to our listeners in Japan. What a momentous occasion! Kaiju Vision Radio, the show that combines movie appreciation, history, culture, and international affairs focusing on Japan, has reached its landmark 50th episode. I have a great show planned for you today. It has been 50 episodes of intense production, and I'm not going anywhere. Thank you so much to the show's Patreon donors and for all of your enthusiasm. This program has gone where no others have before. The film descriptions are like English papers, the film appreciation segments are insightful and different than anything else out there, and the related topics segments are almost always about Japan. They educate kaiju and tokusatsu fans with a treasure trove of contextual information about these movies that we appreciate so much. I'm a bit of a Japanophile, and my education in international relations and comparative politics have affected the way that I look at everything. And what a great movie we have for the 50th episode, right? In the last episode, I mentioned the t-shirt for the show that was being offered to Patreon donors that was going on ever since the show began. The new art for this show is really special, and I wanted to make a better offer than just that. This month, I've been working many hours to get so many different selections of Kaiju Vision Radio merchandise available on Redbubble. There's a link to it on kaijuvision.com, or just search kaijuvision, one word, on Redbubble's homepage. There are two main designs used on the merchandise, the KVR logo and the Tori Gate banner. The banner is beautiful art that I brainstormed on with a Japanese friend of mine who's also a kaiju fan. The banner contains a mysterious kaiju raiding a city. There's a Tori Gate framing him on top of a building that has a big doomsday clock on the top of it. The clock is at 11.55pm. The Tory Gate can be thought of as a gate between the natural and the supernatural. So that's why the kaiju is on the other side of the gate. Then I had an American artist from New York go from there. So we've got Japanese symbolism, doomsday symbolism, and a kaiju that's as original as the show. Some of the merchandise on Redbubble include stickers, mugs, travel mugs, coffee mugs, acrylic blocks, wall tapestries, studio pouches, spiral notebooks, clocks, tote bags, throw pillows, and even duvet covers. I'm drinking out of one of the coffee mugs right now. There are all kinds of t-shirts available, but the premium t-shirts are really comfortable, they're high quality, and they come with their own wash bag to protect them and make them last long. All of the art is the highest possible resolution images digitally created from vectored artwork. Super clear and crisp images on everything. I individually prepare the image for every single item myself, everything custom fit, meticulously and methodically. And by buying from Redbubble, you're donating a portion of the proceeds to the show so I can continue the show's mission. Every item on Redbubble looks stunning. Definitely check it out. The link is on kaijuvision.com. In this episode, I will be covering the 1966 film War of the Gargantuas. The original Japanese title was Frankenstein's Monsters, Sanda vs. Gaila. This movie has a special place in my heart as a kaiju and movie fan. I liked it instantly. That's how it worked for most Godzilla films too, but War of the Gargantuas is one of my favorite tokusatsu movies ever. This is going to be great. The related topic for this episode is the ascension of Emperor Naruhito. It's a current event, with this taking place right at the time of the recording of this episode. I'll give you the important information about Japan's new emperor and empress, and about the new Reiwa period. Always check the show notes for the times to skip to if you want to go to part 2 or 3 now. A short description of the film is next. It is Kaiju Vision's unique audience-focused method to arm the listeners with the facts. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio.
Gaila is a merciless, violent, impulsive, mainly sea-dwelling kaijin. He is an offspring of cells that originated from Sanda, a peaceful kaijin who encountered humans early in life. Both kaijin can express primitive human-like emotions. Gaila's animalistic emotions contrast with Sanda's empathetic emotions. Gaila is driven by acts of aggression against humans, including consuming them, but Sanda wants to peacefully coexist with humans. Dr. Paul Stewart is a smart, determined, and uncompromising scientist. He mainly wants to protect Sanda from the self-defense forces and protect the human population from Gaila. Dr. Stewart's assistant, Akami Togawa, is devoted to the same scientific causes that he is. The two are also in a relationship. She formed a bond with Sanda when he was an adolescent, which made Sanda more understanding towards humans. The self-defense forces, led by the army commander, are primarily concerned with eliminating the kaijin, despite the risks outlined by the concerned scientists. The human and kaijin plots are unified. Everything the humans do revolves around the kaijin. Gaila is the problem. The SDF considers both Gaila and Sanda as the problem. First, the public is encouraged to turn on their lights in order to keep Gaila out of the city. Then the SDF use artillery, tanks, and helicopters, but they are unable to defeat Gaila. Then they use Type 66 Macer cannons, tripwire cannons, and electrification of a river Gaila steps in, but Sanda appears and saves Gaila. Once Sanda has no other alternative but physical force to stop Gaila's violence, the two kaijin battle each other. The problem is solved when an undersea volcano erupts in Tokyo Bay and kills both kaijin. The story is simple, with a small group of core characters with low subplot activity. It is loosely based on the Japanese mythological tale of Umihiko and Yamahiko, originally contained in the Kojiki. Umihiko was the older brother who caught fish from the sea, and his younger brother was Yamahiko, who lived in the mountains hunting animals and birds. The main similarity between the myth and the story in this movie is that the brothers became rivals. The story was written by Ruben Berkovich, and the screenplay was written by Ishiro Honda and Takeshi Kimura. The budget of the film is unknown. The film was a co-production between Toho, Benedict Pictures Corporation, and UPA, United Productions of America, which is the main studio arm of AIP, American International Pictures. It is the third and final co-production between Toho and American companies under this arrangement. The other two were Frankenstein Conquers the World from 1965 and Invasion of Astro Monster from 1965. Special effects were directed by Eiji Tsuburaya and include back projections, superimpositions, animation, atmospheric effects, matte paintings, composites, and miniatures. The effects look good, especially the miniatures, with plenty of detail. The volcano scene is impressive, as are the scenes with bodies of water on the set. As Gaila, Haru Nakajima liked how easy he could move in the much lighter suit. It was filmed in Tohoscope with monaural sound. The tone of the film is serious and moderately dark. The events in the film are treated seriously. With two giant Frankenstein kaijin fighting each other, it's a fantasy film. While the movie is not as experimental as Frankenstein Conquers the World, it still does something that hadn't been done before. It pits two kaijin against each other and has no kaiju. It is also comparatively more horrific than the previous film because Gaila eats humans. War of the Gargantuas reinforces the style of Frankenstein Conquers the World. It has many of the same thematic and story elements, the same type of characters and similar events. It does many things the previous movie did well. Like Frankenstein Conquers the World, the movie was primarily marketed to teenagers and children. By the mid-1960s, more kaiju and tokusatsu films were being marketed specifically for younger audiences. It was meant to be an entertaining sci-fi horror film for the targeted demographic. The film was released on July 31, 1966 in Japan. It was moderately successful, making $3 million at the box office. It has a rating of 6.4 on that movie database, with 1,923 votes at the time of the recording of this episode. The film is well known and enjoyed by the kaiju movie fanbase. The film was released in the United States on July 29, 1970 by Marin Films on a double bill with Invasion of Astro Monster. The film was moderately successful. The original 88-minute film was edited and augmented into a longer 92 minutes for the English-language version. The scenes were reordered to focus more on Dr. Stewart, played by Russ Tamblin. Nine scenes were shot differently than in the original version. 
For some reason, the English-language version of the movie contains a different recording of Kip Hamilton's performance. This version does not have any references to Frankenstein. The Japanese title, Frankenstein's Monsters, Sanda vs. Gaila, was changed to War of the Gargantuas. Some of Akira Ikefube's soundtrack was replaced with music from the 1957 American film The Incredible Petrified World, as well as other library music, presumably to make the movie sound more American. This music is pretty bad. Some sound effects were changed, including adding stomping sound effects when the kaijin walk. The reference to Frankenstein's hand from the previous film is removed, as well as other references to the previous film. Toho had a Japanese company create an international dub which was not released until 2017. It retained the references to Frankenstein and dubbed over Russ Tamblin's dialogue. The normally used English dub was commissioned by Henry Saperstein, which has no references to Frankenstein and contains Russ Tamblin's voice. There are a few forces at play. Gyla originated from cells that fell off of Sanda, raising the possibility that if both are allowed to continue living, there could be many more kaijin causing destruction. This exhibits the incompatibility between humanity and the gargantuas. However, Sanda was raised by humans and doesn't want to see anyone hurt. There is conflict between the armed forces and the scientists over how to solve the problem and what the problem even is. Unlike many previous tokusatsu movies in the past, where scientists had a huge amount of control, in this film the armed forces have control, and they frequently refuse to listen to the scientists' concerns. Napalm is mentioned as a solution, referencing the Vietnam War. The story has a few possible themes. The scientists don't have as much influence as they should, considering they are the ones who know what's going on. One theme is that the military should let scientists do the thinking, since that's their expertise. Another theme is that if two opposite sides can't reconcile, then they end up destroying each other. The two kaijin may represent nature versus nurture, since one is wild and one was introduced to human norms. Since the basics of the story are connected to an ancient Japanese myth, and the myth ends differently than the story in the movie, the basic premise may be all that is relevant. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. I saw this movie for the first time in 2012 when I got the two-disc Toho DVD collector's set with Rodan, and this movie was part of it. I've loved it ever since. It's just incredible. It's also very rewatchable. Before we get down to business with what's going on in the movie, I'll begin with some facts that make this film special. In 2012, Brad Pitt says that this was the first movie he ever saw. I wish I'd been so lucky. At the Academy Awards, he said, I remember seeing a film called Gargantuas. At the end of it, the good Gargantuan had to sacrifice himself to defeat the bad Gargantuan and rid the world of evil. Brad Pitt said that the movie inspired him to be an actor. I like Brad Pitt a lot, and especially in Fight Club, even though it kind of messed him up for a little while, it's one of my absolute favorite movies ever. It's such a great story, I've read it before, and the movie is filmed so well. This is also a favorite movie of Nicolas Cage? Well, how can you go wrong there? And Tab Hunter was originally chosen for Russ Tamblin's part in this movie. I don't know what that would have looked like, nor can I imagine it. It probably would have been good. He would have looked similar to Nick Adams, actually. The hair color was very similar, and the hairstyles are, like, dead on, too, almost. I still like Tamblin more. Tab Hunter ended up being in a soupy sales movie that year instead. Quentin Tarantino's movie, Kill Bill Volume 2, has parts that were inspired by this movie. There's a shot of a miniature Tokyo in it, even. If you haven't seen his film Sukiyaki Western Django, I highly recommend it. There's also Guillermo del Toro. He saw this movie in a theater when he was growing up. He said someone from the balcony above him dumped pee on him during the movie, but he didn't leave the theater because he loved kaiju, or in this case kaijin, so much. He said this movie was one source of inspiration for Pacific Rim, specifically the opening for that movie. Tim Burton's daughter also has this movie as one of her favorites. So this movie has been inspiring people left and right. The song, The Words Get Stuck in My Throat, is sung at the end of G-Fest, typically. This is a big deal in pop culture, this song. 
The song was performed live by Devo in 1978, which was 12 years after the movie came out, but it was only 8 years after the movie came out in America. Episode 109 of Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated from 2010 is an homage to War of the Gargantuas and includes a performance of the song. So this movie has really made its mark on pop culture. Now getting into the movie, I'll start with the music. I love the soundtrack in this. Kafube is very good. And the music is more original, and there's a lot more going on with this movie, to, with the score, compared to the previous movie. The march that gets played a lot with the brass is really good. It feels absolutely right. The octopus comes back, and if you never saw the alternate ending to the previous movie, it's a new octopus. This scene is great at establishing the world and atmosphere of this movie. The part where Gyla is standing and the smoke is hanging in the air, that's just lots of little touches in this movie like that. In this movie, they say Frankenstein in the original Japanese version. The man who witnessed the attack from the beginning of the movie on the ship, he says, if I was going to lie, I'd think of something better. That's a really good line. In the English language version, they say Gargantua. And so then we're taken to this research facility and we're introduced to Dr. Stewart, who's played by Russ Tamblin. I like Russ Tamblin a lot. When reading about his behavior or whatever, I thought, sorry, no, that's not going to change my perception of him one bit. Later in his life, in fact, he said that he was initially embarrassed to be in it, but now he's learned to love the film. He's now in his mid-80s in age. I don't feel the need to get all negative and upset because he ad-libbed some lines and didn't do what Honda told him to. Russ Hamblin is a good actor, and he's done way more than other American actors who have been in these movies. He was in two of the greatest movie musicals ever made, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and West Side Story. I read a criticism that he sleepwalked through his lines. However, that could be explained by the fact that he had to say it twice. The first audio of his voice was lost, so he had to do it again. So I think there's your reason. I'm not surprised that he may sound somewhat bored the second time around. What I do like is that he looks much more natural in this movie than the vast majority of other American actors would look. And this isn't an easy movie to look natural in. I feel like he looks better with Kumi Mizuno and the other Japanese actors. I just can't find the energy to get all umphy about this topic. He fits to this movie like a hand to a glove. I positively love the line that his character gets to say, Frankenstein cannot be found in the ocean. Goodbye. I love it because it's totally the cinematic world that we're living in. We're not in Kansas anymore. I know the audience has to react to this, like, huh, okay, suspension of disbelief complete. The main point is that the scientists have no reason to think that Frankenstein would do this. It's not in his nature to attack boats and harm other people. In the previous movie, he only scared the daylights out of a boat full of people. Nobody got really hurt, though. Then we get our hallucinogenic, almost, wild scene of Akami with the younger Frankenstein, who suddenly does understand Japanese now. This is one of those scenes where you realize this movie is so refreshingly itself. She's having him drink the milk and all this stuff under scientific observation. It's such a weird flashback. The scenes with Gyla continue, with him messing around with the fishermen and with the people pulling the nets. It's like a tug of war. We receive some more plot scenes involving the investigation of the existence of this new Frankenstein. Some footprints are found in the mountains and a few other things. And the green fur, for instance. But then, then we get the scene at Haneda Airport. This is one of my favorite scenes of any tokusatsu movie from Japan ever. It's filmed well. I accept the models and the miniatures and all the other work and attention that was paid to creating this genius scene. It's brilliant, especially back when something like this hadn't been done before, really. It's one of those scenes you want to remake and put into another new kaiju movie. It's better than the Hawaii airport scene in Godzilla 2014. It's scarier, and it feels more real. The music fits perfectly. The scene is captivating, engrossing, and executed so well. I was blown away the first time I saw this. It's so exciting. A lot of this movie takes place at night, so this scene during the day at the airport just makes this movie incredible. Great job by all the people involved in the crowds, too. They looked so into it. 
The human connection experiencing all this fear is so energetic. Special effects-wise, it also looks good. Composites, murals, miniatures, all that. This is maybe one of the best scenes of its kind in all of tokusatsu movies from this time period. Who else loves airplanes? I love airplanes. I love aviation. Did I mention that? Airports nowadays are really scary anyway, so the idea of an incident like this happening now would be incredible. I like this scene from War of the Gargantuas more than the entire movie Die Hard 2, which a lot of that takes place at an airport. This scene also stands out as a horrific event in the history of kaiju movies. That's another reason why I love it. When people who don't get kaiju movies and tokusatsu, I point to this as a reason why I like them. Next, Dr. Stewart and Akami are on the Shinkansen, the bullet train that debuted in 1964, only two years before this. Check out part three of episode nine of the show where the Shinkansen is discussed. That's the Mothra vs. Godzilla episode. Akami and Dr. Stewart are on their way to the defense ministry. When they show up, it's said how Gyla's weakness is bright light, which that reminds me of gremlins or something. Dr. Stewart is asked by the group of reporters if he intends to raise Frankenstein for his experiments. He says yes, which is a surprise to them. Dr. Kita, who's played by Nobuo Nakamura, says they don't know how to do that anyway, so it's a moot point. But it's pretty astounding to hear a scientist say that he wants to make another one of these things that is running around killing and eating people. He's also intent on keeping Frankenstein out of the news, so media strategy is important in this new world where televisions are all over the place. And then after that, it's the other scene, the other big scene. And by that I mean the Kip Hamilton scene. This song is actually a group song sung at the end of G-Fest every year. She is, of course, Carol Burnett's sister. Henry Saperstein was dating her, so that's where the connection and why she's in there. It's also a huge reminder of King Kong. She suddenly turned into Anne Darrow, only King Kong is evil this time. The song does go a bit too long, doesn't it, though? This scene is notable for the fact that it's more horrific than a lot of scenes like this up to this point. And that's great. Keep it coming. The English language version actually has a different recording of her for some reason. Maybe she and Saperstein thought the other recording was better, so they used that. Beats me. In the previous episode, I mentioned how it was strange to have the much more human-looking Frankenstein next to all these models and with all the special effects. And it's because you have a real human amongst all of these artificial surroundings. And since kaiju are usually just a man in a suit, which is more artificial, there's no interruption of that artificiality with the kaiju. With the two kaijin in this movie, it is just like a kaiju movie to me now. They look not human enough to mix in with their surroundings perfectly. It's another reason why I like this movie more than the previous one. The self-defense mobilization scene is quite good, and it's one of the last ones that looked good. Parts of this ended up in later movies. The models look exquisite, but just as important, the music, which is recognizable to many kaiju and tokusatsu fans, sounds terrific. The maser cannons are shown in this scene for the very first time. These would go on to be used and featured in many movies from the Godzilla series. These are different from the atomic heat ray guns which were used in Mothra, which those were descendants of the famous Markelite Fops from the Mysterians. MACER stands for Microwave Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation. These are Type 66 MACER cannons to be exact. The models are so high quality looking. And then turning off all the lights on one by one is well composed editing and that's used in later movies too. Throwing all the fire on him is also impressive, clearly burning the suit with Nakajima wearing it. The throwing of the tanks is a lot of incredibly nice model houses that get destroyed, isn't it? That's sort of part one of the JSDF conflict with Gyla as they start setting up all of the more intricate traps for him. All of the helicopters in this scene getting trashed really reminds me of Kong Skull Island. The Macer Cannon rays and the trees getting blown apart, that's absolutely awesome too. It's one of the best parts of the movie, actually. The SDF does a pretty impressive job for once, trying to eliminate him. The electrification of the river is also extra. At almost the exact halfway point of the movie, Sonda appears, and the movie changes dramatically. This was the Frankenstein that grew up in the lab, and the humans involved will realize Sonda is the good one. 
cloning is mentioned in the scene later on, it reminds me of Shin Godzilla and how that organism evolved and how the conversation around it in the movie worked. The premise is, is that when attacking the Frankensteins, any of the cells that break off of them could turn into their own Frankensteins. Then they would be everywhere. Again, I'm also reminded of gremlins, but I'll ignore the urge to delve into that comparison more. But it is the same principle. They multiply asexually, and then they overrun the planet, and then humanity ends. I don't know if the ethics of this are a big deal in this movie, but it does at least mess around with this. Effectively, it limits your options of how to kill the monsters, right? Because if you blow the monster up, then all those little pieces become more monsters. One of the JSDF staff with the general mentions napalm as a possible solution for killing them because it will incinerate them and suffocate them as they burn. This is a current subject of discussion, as the Vietnam War was going on in Southeast Asia, and Japan had a lot of involvement with this because of the U.S. bases being there. Napalm was a big deal because of its unique destructive characteristics. In the next scene, there are some of the young people hiking through the wilderness, and they're singing this folk song together, and Dr. Stewart and Akami briefly discuss how the young people aren't afraid. And this is referencing the youth movements that are all around the world that were very courageous and were going on at the time. It's funny that in 1974, it was exactly this type of youth hiking in the Philippines who found the Japanese holdout soldier, Hiro Onoda, and not the government who had been looking for him for years. It's like a real-life Takeshi Kimura story with the authorities being incompetent and all. When Akami falls, this makes Sanda rescue her from potential death. This turns things around. Because, like in the previous movie, Frankenstein Conquers the World, one of the two suspected evil creatures is exonerated. The big turning point in the story is when Sanda and Gyla actually get into conflict. Sanda is upset with Gyla because of Gyla's aggressive ways. The self-defense force and the scientists repeatedly get into it over Sanda and Gyla. The SDF refuses to make any distinction between the two, and the scientists insist that there has to be a distinction made. Before, in the earlier movies, the scientists were listened to more readily, but now the SDF is in the front seat and not listening to the facts. Dr. Stewart's motivation in advocating for Sonda is not only to protect Sonda, but also to get Sonda contained for further study. It would be really difficult to do this, but... Gaila's attack on Tokyo is a really great sequence of scenes, and it's another night scene. It makes a difference to the atmosphere of the movie. It makes it scarier, it makes it more believable that he'd show up at night too because the sun hurts him, so once you've established that, the monster has to come out in the dark. It's funny that Gamera vs. Gauss, which came out a year later, had the same thing with Gauss, and that they went in a vampire direction while meanwhile Toho was going in a Frankenstein direction. I love how the sky in these dark scenes looks too. It's this dark blue color and it looks so nice. Kaiju and Kaijin rampages at night are really good in general. The relationship between Sanda and Akami has overtones of King Kong in this too, with the monster showing this connection to her and caring for her. This is when Akami sacrifices her safety to try to save Sanda from the SDF. Dr. Stewart ends up going with her. Unfortunately, they run into the wrong monster and she's hurt after being dropped by Gyla. This is what causes the feud between the two kaijin to explode. The scene in the subway station with Dr. Stewart and Akami reminds me of the subway station scene from Godzilla Raids Again, and also the Godzilla 2014 brief scene when L. Brody is in the BART station. This is where the suit acting gets amazingly good. These two kaijin have quite a few human emotions, and they're more expressive in their communications than most kaiju are, so this gives the suit actors more range to express themselves. The suits are also a lot lighter than many kaiju suits, so they are given the physical freedom to get more expressive. Sanda shaking his head and holding out his arms is something I never forget when I watch this movie. The suits remind me of King Ushiza from that suit from the 1974 Godzilla movie Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. And their faces aren't expressive, but their movements are. And this reminds me of the Japanese art of Bunraku. It's been mentioned by plenty of people now that these forms of Japanese art are echoed in kaiju and tokusatsu movies. The part where Dr. Stewart tells the SDF that Sanda is going to beat Gaila is kind of funny because Sanda's the one with the broken leg here. The great expressions of these two kaijin is one of the reasons why I like this movie so much. 
you really feel the struggle, even though they don't say anything. It's like watching a silent movie. There's an incredible amount of energy in the fight at the end. It's really violent and exciting. The atmospheric effects of the fog and the water and the volcano are so incredible looking. We get many different shots of this, and all of them are beautiful. The colors are so pretty, the purple especially. It's one of the best special effects moments of its kind in any tokusatsu movie. It feels all too brief, and I usually go back and rewatch it. It's filmed really well, and it's so awesome to watch everything come together like that. It's a Tsuburaya-stylized version of what a volcano eruption underwater would look like. They could have made it a lot less stylistic and organic, but I prefer this version a lot more. And there's no point in bringing realism into this and analyzing a volcano erupting in Tokyo Bay and saying that's not likely to happen or whatever. But this is a good way to get rid of them without the two murdering each other or something like that. It's a better way to end the story where they both get incinerated, I guess. Presumably, there won't be any more gargantuas, but that's just a guess, though. The SDF did use a whole bunch of artillery on Gaila, and so there may be pieces of him all over Tokyo. That's where we lose the thread with the cloning issue. One version of this story, though, it had the underwater volcano destroy Tokyo, and therefore all of the cells that would have been reproduced. So that would have tied up the ending, but the ending also would have been a bit more of a downer if all of Tokyo just suddenly got destroyed. Regarding the English language version overall, the biggest downside is the music. It's stock music. It sounds American, yeah, but from like 1930s America, from like a mystery science theater movie. It sounds like the music at the end of Racket Girls. Funny movie, but really bad. We switch back and forth between the Ikafube music and this crappy stock music. It's like there are two conductors fighting over which soundtrack is going to sit on the throne at the end. They play the same stock music over and over and over again, too. The order of the scenes is messed around with, and again, I prefer the original Japanese version, but to anybody who's listened to this show for any length of time, you realize that me saying the Japanese version is better is normal. I can't account for the difference in cinematography between this movie and the last one, as we have seen to have the same creative staff behind the camera, but the cinematography is so much better in this movie than the previous one. The first one looked haphazardly filmed, and it just wasn't very visually impressive. This one looks like they spent enough attention to detail and on making the movie look good scene after scene. This one looks like it could have been storyboarded. The last one did not look like it had been storyboarded. But this movie is shot so much better. The bare bones of this story is taken from a myth that's in a very important ancient Japanese text called the Kojiki. One brother lives near the sea, and the other one lives in the mountains. Beyond that, there are a few directions I can go regarding the symbolism behind the two gargantuas. The kaijin were supposed to be different colors originally. Sanda was supposed to be white instead of brown, Sanda was supposed to be white instead of brown, and Gaila was supposed to be gray instead of green. Sanda is from the mountains, while Gaila is from the ocean. One is more peaceful, and one acts out of rage and acts impulsively. Also, Gaila technically sprang out of Sanda, so Gaila's younger. If you have a more inward path for the symbolism, the two kaijin could represent the duality of human existence. They could represent the two sides to human nature, both the empathetic and the primal. So they're a mirror into the human soul, maybe. It could be nature versus nurture, too, because Sanda got acclimated to humans and grew to like them, while Gaila didn't grow up around humans and grew basically up in the wild. I could be all easy about it and go for the always popular pre-war surrender versus post-war Japan symbolism. Gaila would be pre-surrender Japan and Sanda would be peaceful post-surrender Japan. But Gaila sprang from Sanda, so that comparison would have the two out of order. One listener suggested the symbolism could be a pre-war democratic Japan from the 19-teens and 20s, and Gaila is imperial Japan, and the war is about fighting over what will happen and which one will be dominant. That would put the order right, at least. There are a lot of ways to examine this setup. There, this might be actually none of the above, thematically. We don't know. But this is a Takeshi Kimura screenplay, after all. And so with him, you expect some kind of symbolism like this. That concludes part two, and I'll move on to our related topic. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio.
In part three of the podcast, I will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. Instead, this time, I'm going to be talking about a current event for a change, and it's because it's going on right now. It's not often that you get to talk about something like this. The last time we had a new Japanese emperor was back in 1989 to 1990. So the topic for this episode is the ascension of Emperor Naruhito. So I'll give you some details about this historic imperial transition. Naruhito was born in 1960, so he's 59 years old right now. He will be the 126th emperor of the longest-lasting dynasty in the world. Emperor Akihito abdicated on April 30th. Naruhito will technically be the emperor starting on May 1st, 2019, which was very recently, and the enthronement will take place on the estimated date of October 22nd. May 1st was the first day of year one of the Reiwa period, as the calendar changes back to the beginning every era. People in charge of the computers had to run an update to transition all of the technology so things go back to year one while avoiding chaos. Reiwa represents a culture being born and nurtured by people coming together beautifully. When now Emperor Emeritus Akihito married Michiko, a commoner, although her father was an industrialist, she's still considered a commoner, this threw 2,600 years of tradition out the window, as the women chosen used to be all from the nobility or from other branches of the imperial family. The couple also decided to raise their children themselves, instead of letting the imperial household raise them. So, Naruhito is the first emperor to be raised by his parents. Naruhito is also the first emperor to be educated abroad. He attended Oxford. While at Oxford, he researched the history of the Thames River. He's hugely interested in water issues, including getting clean water to people who don't have it, and also water conservation. Naruhito has humility, he's a nice, caring person, he is conversational. And Naruhito played the viola and violin. Awesome, I played violin as well. He also played tennis, and I'm also an avid tennis circuit follower. He also played golf, and he's a mountain climber, and he goes jogging and hiking. His wife, Masako, is a former diplomat who was educated at Harvard. Naruhito met her at a party, and after two rejections from her, she said yes to him. He asked her to marry him three times before the imperial household announced the marriage. The marriage was on January 19, 1993. Princess Aiko, their only child, was born December 1, 2001. This started a controversy over the imperial succession because of the laws changed post-war that mandated only male heirs can be emperor. This is the imperial household law that was passed in 1947, which was the last session of the imperial diet. The principle of the succession was kept the same as the 1889 Meiji-era law did, which is called agnatic succession. That means that the inheritance, whether male or female of a throne, can go only to those descended from the original title holder through males only, but it went further to restrict heirs to the throne of male line descendants of the emperor, like sons and grandsons only, and they cannot be illegitimate. After the war, the Japanese nobility was abolished, and along with that, two groups called the Oke and the Shinoke were also abolished. These were descendants of houses of nobility who would provide heirs to the throne if there were no male heirs. This was an effort to make sure that things were kept going and that the imperial family doesn't go extinct. The powers that be in the Diet aren't in favor currently of letting Princess Aiko be empress, but the Japanese public at large doesn't have as much of a problem with that. When Prince Hisahito, Princess Aiko's cousin, was born in 2006, the controversy pretty much ended because a male heir had finally been born. In the time before that, there were discussions held to possibly allow Princess Aiko to ascend the throne, going back as far as 1997. When Prince Hisahito was born, it was the first time in 41 years that a male heir was produced in the imperial family. Hisahito is the only son of Akihito's brother, Prince Fumihito. Regarding the abdication of now Emperor Emeritus Akihito, it's said that his health and age are the reasons for abdicating. Currently, Emperor Emeritus Akihito is 85 years old. He wished to have Naruhito have his time as emperor, considering Naruhito is already 59 years old. For two weeks in 2012, Akihito had to recover from heart bypass surgery, and Naruhito had the imperial duties in his hands during that time. 
Akihito abdicated on April 30th, and Naruhito ascended the throne on May 1st. It has been over 200 years since a Japanese emperor abdicated the chrysanthemum throne. In 2016, he gave a rare televised address where he mentioned his health and his age. This was looked at as an announcement of his abdication. A month or so before this, Akihito leaked to the press that he wished to abdicate. He is now known as His Majesty the Emperor Emeritus, and she is now known as Her Majesty the Empress Emerita. I think Akihito wanted the Diet to change the household law to include a provision for abdication. However, the forces of tradition won out, and the law the Diet passed allowed an exception that only allowed Akihito to abdicate and not anyone else. So it was a one-time thing, not a permanent part put into the law. There is a reporting ritual where messengers and Shinto priests are sent to the mausoleums of the four most recent emperors. That would be Emperor Showa, Emperor Taisho, Emperor Meiji, and Emperor Kome. They reported the emperor's abdication to these four emperors, plus a messenger or priest was sent to the Grand Shrine at Ise, which is the mausoleum for Emperor Jimu. That messenger then reported to Emperor Jimu about the abdication. According to Japanese legend, Emperor Jimu was the first emperor of Japan. All the rituals and ceremonies at these places is a private ceremony. Then the emperor and empress went to pay their respects at the mausoleum for Emperor Jimu, then at Grand Shrine at Ise, and then at the mausoleum of Emperor Showa. April 29th through May 6th is a big intersection of holidays, which is shutting down a lot of business in Japan. April 29th was Showa Day. April 30th through May 2nd is a national holiday to recognize the ascension of Naruhito. Then May 3rd through May 6th is Golden Week. The problem is, daycares are closed, workers will lose income, and the financial markets will be closed for a long period of time. One big thing with the imperial family is staying out of politics and avoiding scandal. Their main functions are ceremonial in nature and to be a symbol of the state and the Japanese people. One problem the imperial family faces is dwindling size and not enough males. The phrase that's used is ensure stable succession. Next, I'll give some info on Empress Masako. She met Naruhito at a party, like I said, in 1986. She was reluctant to say yes to Naruhito's overtures. She also knew that it would mean an end to her career as one of the first few female diplomats in the foreign ministry at the time. While Naruhito was at foreign educational institutions, he grew a fondness for strong, opinionated women, and Masako fit that model. He assured her that he would protect her if she said yes to him to be married. This means the pressure of marrying into the imperial family. There are some similarities between Masako and Princess Diana, but there are a lot more differences. Both Diana and Masako were more independent, strong women. Both were hesitant to marry into royalty. Both had a hard time adjusting to that kind of position. Both experienced depression, or as the Imperial Household Agency described it for Masako, an adjustment disorder. Both Diana and Masako were and are heavily pursued by the media, and though there's a lot of restraint on the Japanese mainstream media's part, the tabloids have been predictably themselves. The similarities really end there because completely different events happened after a while. Naruhito and Masako did not engage in extramarital affairs also, like Charles and Diana both did. There was no divorce either. Naruhito and Masako do not have irreconcilable differences, and Naruhito has defended her when times were worse. For years, she was unable to perform most of her royal duties because of her adjustment disorder. Diana was also a member of the nobility, while Masako was not. Diana's father was a viscount, and they had their own coat of arms, etc. So it was a bigger adjustment for Masako than Diana, quite possibly, though Diana's remarkably different attitude was what made her so different. In Japan, it is okay for a man in the imperial family to marry a commoner, while it is not okay for a woman from the imperial family to marry a commoner. That is probably going to happen next year when Princess Mako marries Kei Kimuro. At that time, she will have to leave the imperial family, technically. Naruhito's sister, Sayako, married a commoner in 2005, and also officially had to leave the imperial family. There is a lot of pressure on Masako to fit the model family that the imperial family is supposed to be. 
she was not a natural fit to that ideal because of her independence and because she was a commoner, technically. She doesn't fit into the sort of classical beauty that the imperial household agency would have preferred either. It must have been a difficult adjustment for her to be living under a microscope like this. She was used to her independence, and like her husband, she was educated at an international educational institution, in her case, both Harvard and Oxford. The main idea behind critics of her was is that she's supposed to be more quiet and less independent. Part of the pressure was also to give birth to a male heir, although this determination is up to the man since he has the Y chromosome. But the pressure is more on the woman. In 1999, she suffered a miscarriage, and then in 2001, she gave birth to Princess Aiko. The pressure to produce a male heir finally went away when Prince Hisahito was born. Fast forwarding to present day, at the time of the release of this episode, Masako has gotten a lot better over the past few years. She is talking at more functions, and she doesn't leave events as early either. She is performing her royal duties, and she's more active and comfortable in her role. And now, her importance has increased again as she is now Empress. Michiko was also under a lot of pressure. Even though she had not been baptized, she was a convert to Shinto from Roman Catholicism. That was problematic from more conservative ends of society in Japan. They wanted the imperial family to not connect with the people. They should instead be above the people, according to that line of thinking. To them, marrying commoners is not good for the imperial family. Instead, it should be someone from the upper nobility or from formal branches of the imperial family that used to exist, like I spoke about before. Both Masako and Michiko faced a lot of the same problems when they married into royalty. Marrying into a royal family is very fascinating to people, though. It's a story that never gets old. So now that Naruhito is emperor, here's what's going to happen next. Between now and the actual enthronement ceremony, there may be more traditional ceremonies and rituals, many of them private. On that day, Naruhito will meet with representatives of the people for the first time. Then he will proclaim his enthronement, which will include representatives from around the world. Finally, there will be a motor car procession with the new emperor and empress. The vehicle has been chosen. It's a Toyota Century, which is a limousine kind of vehicle, four-door, and it will be open-top. Think of like a Rolls-Royce or a Cadillac, only it's a Toyota. It actually is really impressive and expensive. When Akihito was enthroned, the vehicle was a 1990 Rolls-Royce Corniche. These Toyota Century cars are boasted as virtually hand-built. The Century Royal is the official state vehicle used by the Emperor. On November 14th and 15th, it is the important ceremony called the Daijosai. It is traditionally attended only by male members of the imperial family, like a lot of these functions are. In that ceremony, the new emperor eats rice harvested from that year to give thanks for Japan's supply of grain. The rice is harvested from sacred rice fields from the east and west of Japan. The emperor makes an offering of the rice to the kami and then has some himself. All of these rituals are rooted in Shinto tradition. The reason why these ceremonies are private is another thing that makes the imperial family separate from everyone else. And so, the people are not participating in these little events. Just when you thought all of this is over, after November, Japan and the Diet will have a debate over an important issue, guaranteeing the longevity of the imperial family. The family is getting smaller due to aging and to some of the women marrying commoners and being formally removed. Currently, there are only three male heirs. The debate will center around if the women who marry commoners will be able to start their own branches of the imperial family. It will also be about if these women can continue in a public service capacity even if they're not technically part of the family anymore. There is also the possibility of reinstating male descendants from those branches that were removed when the war had ended they would then be adopted into the imperial family. I doubt that anything will be done for Princess Aiko just because Prince Hisahito is likely going to be the next emperor. He is currently 12 years old. So that's where everything stands right now with the imperial transition and the status of the oldest dynasty on Earth. Kaiju Vision Radio wishes Japan a happy long holiday despite any difficulties that people have from the disruption. Welcome to the new Reiwa period. Hopefully there will be many more Godzilla movies in this new era. Emperor Naruhito gave a very short address after he was officially made the new emperor. It sounds like he will be a lot like his father. Here are his remarks. 
I have hereby succeeded to the throne pursuant to the Constitution of Japan and the Special Measures Law on the Imperial Household Law. When I think about the important responsibility I have assumed, I am filled with a sense of solemnity. Looking back, His Majesty the Emperor Emeritus, since succeeding to the throne, performed each of his duties in earnest for more than thirty years while praying for world peace and the happiness of the people, and at all times sharing in the joys and sorrows of the people. He showed profound compassion through his own bearing. I would like to express my heartfelt respect and appreciation of the comportment shown by His Majesty the Emperor Emeritus as the symbol of the state and of the unity of the people of Japan. I am acceding to the throne. I swear that I will reflect deeply on the course followed by His Majesty the Emperor Emeritus and bear in mind the path trodden by past emperors, and will devote myself to self-improvement. I also swear that I will act according to the Constitution and fulfill my responsibility as the symbol of the state and of the unity of the people of Japan, while always turning my thoughts to the people and standing with them. I sincerely pray for the happiness of the people and the further development of the nation, as well as the peace of the world. So those are his comments that he made when he became emperor. Very short and sweet, but very to the point. If you want to learn more about the ascension of Emperor Akihito, check the 1989 episode on Godzilla vs. Biollante. If you want to learn more about Emperor Showa, Hirohito, you can go to the 1975 Terror of Mechagodzilla episode. Regarding economic figures of note that I always do in this show, the GDP increase for 1966 was 10.63%, so rocketing economic growth. This episode is dedicated to the magnificent actor Russ Tamblin. He's in his 80s now. It's so awesome that you changed your opinion about this movie. The next episode of this podcast will be 1969's Latitude Zero. Please keep me in your thoughts as I work on the episode for this movie. Hopefully the parts with Cesar Romero in them will not drive me insane. I'd like to send a shout out to our patrons, Kiyoe Toshi, Sean Stiff, and William Mize. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Donating is worth it, you get the inside track to what's going on in the show, and you get to message me personally. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please donate on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and this has been the 50th episode of KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.